Well, it's pretty unusual for us to have, uh, every time the door opens, you hear uh, water pouring outside, and we have our first leak in the uh, sanctuary. I'm sure that's probably due to certain people crawling around in the attic. Um, <clears throat> I won't mention who that might have been, but uh, uh, all I know is that slate roof up there was uh, made sometime in the early 50s, so it's going to be lots of fun to have that thing um, repaired or replaced, one of the two, so uh, could be could be an interesting uh, spring. So anyway, uh, we press on with our study of uh, church history. I know it's uh, New Year's Day and you're supposed to have some sort of very insightful little ditty uh, about uh, the progress of history or whatever, but I sort of figure, well, you can't really look forward to the future if you don't have an idea of where you've come from in the past. And that's, I think, one of the major problems that we face in our society, in our world today, is very few people have that knowledge of, uh, of the past and as such are very easily manipulated um, in having an odd view of the future. And uh, last week, we sort of snuck an extra lesson in on the subject of uh, the celebration of Christmas and the incarnation and things relevant there too, but I felt like it still did fit with the uh, church history theme anyways, and uh, did fit sort of in the time period that we are looking at. But uh, returning to where we were, we are looking at what's called the Alexandrian School, and we're looking specifically at an individual by the name of Origen. If you've been with us, then you know that we have been looking at the development of a catechetical school, a school of instruction. It wasn't so much at the beginning uh, a place of buildings and staff and things like that as we tend to think of universities and schools today. Uh, most schools in the past were focused upon an individual um, and uh, would grow up around a particular teacher. Very often he would be peripatetic. He would be walking about gathering disciples and things like that. And uh, we had noticed the uh, founding of the school by Pantanus, and then Clement uh, of Alexandria uh, takes over at that point. And then we have, upon Clement's removal, Origen. And we were looking at some of the interesting elements of Origen's life. And then we start looking at uh, some of the both contribute. Well, I suppose contribution can be taken both negatively and positively. Um, you you cannot ignore uh, Origen. Uh, his impact upon church history has been uh, great, um, but that can be both positive and negative. And hopefully one of the things we're beginning to learn as we look back at church history is we have to avoid, I think, one of the most common ways or mindsets that people adopt in looking at history, and that is the idea of, well, uh, if this was a bad guy, then we can just, uh, we'll just ignore him. We don't want to be sullied. We don't want to get our hands dirtied. Well, that's just not really an option uh, because to understand, for example, uh, what is going to happen at uh, the time of the Renaissance and um, to understand a phrase 
that will become important there, uh, and that was ad fontes to the source. Uh, this was the great uh, cry of Renaissance humanism, and humanism did not mean then what it means uh, today. Um, certainly there's a relationship, but uh, the idea was that there was a, a, a deep necessity to go back uh, to the original sources. Well, why would you need to do that? Well, because you had had something developed during the medieval period called scholasticism. And scholasticism was uh, very much involved in uh, learning what certain great theologians had said. And so to be a great theologian, you just simply were repeating what other theologians had said. And uh, uh, this led to a stifling, obviously, of inquiry and of scholarship. And you keep tracing things back and ask, well, why did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? And eventually, uh, one of the uh, primary people you run into is the influence of origin. And while it was not his intention, this is something that is important to recognize, um, people in the past had huge impacts upon church history who had absolutely positively no intention to do the things they did. Um, many of you are familiar with Dave Hunt, the late Dave Hunt. And... Um, uh, some of his books, uh, Woman Rides the Beast and things like that, he wrote a number of books on the subject of Roman Catholicism. Well, he took a, what I would call the, uh, the Brethren view of church history. He was deeply influenced by the Brethren movement. And from his perspective, um, you could look at Augustine, and because things Augustine said became central in the development of what would become Roman Catholicism, well, then you can just dismiss Augustine as the first Roman Catholic. And um, you can uh, make connections in church history that the individuals at the time of their lives would have had no earthly idea why you were condemning them or... Um, you know, as we see, we will see when we get into Augustine, his doctrine of the church was very important in Roman Catholicism, whereas his doctrine of grace is very important in the Reformation. There were reasons for this. And yes, things that happened in his life eventually uh, were a, a seed that would develop into the Inquisition. So can't you blast Augustine for that? No, Augustine had no, no concept, no earthly idea um, that the decisions that he made in his life uh, centuries later would lead to something such as the Inquisition. But it's very, very easy uh, looking backwards into history uh, to, to put on the inquisitorial robes, in essence, and condemn people right, left, and center. Uh, who at the time would have had no earthly idea uh, how their words or their ideas would eventually develop, especially as those words and ideas would, would then interact with things that took place after their lives or in far-flung places. Um, so it's, it's, again, it's not a matter of, of compromising, 
but it's a matter of recognizing that history is not this nice, clean, uh, simple timeline that so often uh, we encounter, and hence we need to be a little bit careful. So we look at Origen, and Origen, for example, is very important as an early scholar of, of examining the text and recognizing that there were variations that existed in the text of his day, and we mentioned the hexapla, uh, the, the parallel columned text that he produced and uh, how important that was and how difficult that would have been in his day uh, given the materials that would have been available to him and the amount of time that would have uh, gone into that. But the greatest area of Origen's impact seems to be in the area of exegesis or we might even, uh, I think, properly uh, say eisegesis, reading into the text rather than reading out of the text. And that is, Origen presented an allegorical methodology of interpretation that often led to the most fantastic and wild concepts. Uh, one could easily fill the rest of our morning with the reading of examples from Origen of allegorical interpretation or uh, interpretations that would become commonplace <coughs> in later centuries. Uh, but this came to uh, fruition in, in Origen's mind. And, and this is what was going on. In allegorical interpretation, there are three senses. Three senses. The first is the literal sense of the text, which from Origen's perspective was the least important. The least important. And so that which we spend so much time making sure that we understand, have an accurate knowledge of, what did the author intend to convey to his audience? Uh, what would the initial audience have understood the author to be saying? What, were, what was the context of both the author and uh, the initial audience to which he is communicating? Uh, these things Origen considered to be, well, since they were pretty much accessible to anyone with just a little bit of elbow grease, a little bit of uh, insight, uh, a little bit of study, then that's not, that's not really overly relevant. And you do see here, I think, uh, an influence of a form of Gnosticism. Um, the idea being that, well, there needs to be a special spiritual experience of these things that will not be accessible to outsiders. And so if a well-intentioned, honest-hearted pagan can read the text and conclude that such and such a verse is teaching such and such a thing, that can't be all that important because it doesn't require a special spiritual aspect of these things. And so the literal was the least important. Then there would be the moral sense, the moral sense. And so the idea being that um, anywhere in scripture there was some type of moral uh, warning or lesson or being presented in that particular text, even if it was a from our perspective, merely a historical accounting of a certain event, 
there still had to be a moral sense because this would be this would require more enlightenment there, this would be the next stage of enlightenment you've got the literal anybody can come up with that but then not everyone's truly moral so there's a the moral sense and that's a, a little bit more important uh, that, that takes a little bit more work to get to but then you have the spiritual or allegorical sense which is the most important and this is only accessible um, to the spiritually minded individual and you can imagine that there are certain kinds of scripture that are really susceptible uh, to wildly abusive allegorical interpretation and the most obvious the two most obvious kinds would be well what we're doing on Sunday mornings right now Pastor Fry is working through parables and parables by their very nature uh, scream uh, for uh, some kind of allegorical interpretation uh, this represents this this represents that and so you can start putting together incredibly fanciful uh, applications at that particular point in time and of course uh, the problem with allegorical interpretation is where you end up pretty much depends upon the initial interpreters definition of what is represented by the various signs and symbols and so what that means is allegorical interpretation will yield five six a dozen a hundred different interpretations of the same text because there is no there is no objective set of rules that can limit what you can insert into that particular text uh, the other form of literature found particularly in the New Testament that is primarily subject to these things uh, is of course apocalyptic and so um, interpretation particularly of the book of Revelation um, again as we see in our day um, uh, opens itself up for a, a tremendously wide variety of interpretations depending on how you uh, sense the spiritual application and things like that now what was most um, what was most difficult here is after origin the Old Testament primarily becomes a, a book of allegorical stories the connection historically to the people of Israel uh, the intimate connection didactically teaching wise uh, doctrinally between the Old Testament and the book of Hebrews and everything uh, all those citations in the New Testament becomes functionally broken in well, well it's interesting you will even find in medieval period in the medieval period where you have you know there's a reason that certain of those centuries were called the dark ages um, because once the Roman Empire breaks down um, as I've already mentioned to you six or seven times already but during that time period in, in many places in Europe 
you would never travel more than seven miles in any one direction from where you were born. And hence, education, a knowledge of other ways and other ways of thinking, uh, there's, there's time periods there where, where, where literacy is, is almost stamped out uh, even amongst the, amongst the clergy in, uh, in Western Europe. And so uh, it's, it's easy to understand how during those time periods especially uh, you'd have real difficulties. But, but even then, you will find some people writing commentaries and when they're dealing with the literal, the easy part, they actually still see the connections between what's in the Old Testament and the New and things like that. But you see, that was so, under the influence of origin, diminished in importance that it was sort of left off to the side as a, eh, well, whatever. And when it came to the real meaning of the text, well, you know, you had to go back and, well, this scholar said this, and he's quoting this guy, and you, you get this, this tradition that builds up over time. Uh, my goodness, I feel like I'm about to turn into a roast beef sandwich up here. Um, uh, I've got it set at 70, for crying out loud. Uh, well, it's 74, so I guess it's just, all right. There, just turn the fan on, turn the stinking heater off. It's on in the back, I can't turn it off back there, so. Whew. Um, anyway. Yeah, we're all bundled up, and, and, and all the ladies are going, oh, no, don't turn it off. And all the guys are going, I'm dying up here. This is the age-old issue uh, of, uh, of who controls the, uh, the thermostat. But uh, anyway, so uh, <coughs> we, we have, um, it's difficult to underestimate the negative impact upon the, the normative teaching and preaching of the church, uh, that the ascendancy of the allegorical method of interpretation represents, uh, it really is difficult. Um, it had a, a truly deleterious effect uh, upon, upon the church. So those three senses, um, remember, just about anyone can understand the literal, so that was hardly important. New Christians receiving instruction could understand the moral truths, but only advanced Christians could understand and recognize the allegorical or spiritual element of each passage. And it's, it's fascinating to look at interpretation because what would then happen is, if you're looking for the allegorical meaning, it's real easy to see in parables and things like that, for example, um, things that were relevant to what was going on in your world at that time. And so you would see in evil people in the parables, the evil people you were being opposed in your day, whatever those evil people would happen to be. 100 years later, it might be somebody else. And so you have this constantly changing. You, you, you can't have an objective standard that calls the church to repentance when it's just, when interpretation has fallen into this kind of, uh, uh, of a problem. So, uh, as a result, obviously, one could find anything one wanted in any given passage. As a result, Origen's theology was anything but orthodox. Um, just a couple of things that we can, uh, and again, I, I guess in, in any summary of, ortho, of Origen's beliefs, given that not everything that he wrote has even been translated into English yet, um, it's, it's somewhat of a uh, temporary summary, but... Um, 
he did not believe the resurrection to involve material bodies. Um, he believed in the pre-existence of the human soul. Um, he felt that redemption would be extended to all beings, including fallen angels. So there was, a, there was in the early church, uh, a fairly widespread uh, form of universalism. Uh, there were those who held to a, a, a universalistic perspective. Um, and here's where it becomes important. Um, his view of Christ... Now remember, where is Origen teaching initially? He's in Alexandria. And then once he's sort of kicked out of Alexandria, he goes to, anyone remember? He founds a school that becomes competitive with Alexandria in Caesarea. Caesarea. Um, but he has huge impact upon the theology in Alexandria. And what he does, and this is not a, a biblical distinction, um, this is not even a, a, a correctly grammatical distinction in many ways, um, but in his discussions of Christ, he ends up distinguishing between the os and ha, the os, between God and the God, with the article, which we would translate as the word the. And while he does emphasize that Jesus is deity, he makes this distinction. Now, if you're trying to be kind to origin, trying to maybe you know, extend some kind of uh, charity, uh, maybe this is simply his way to try to make the distinction uh, between the Father and the Son and how Jesus can be described as, as God and yet needs to be distinguished from the Father because there's just, it just makes mincemeat out of the New Testament to identify the Father and the Son as one person. Maybe this is just his way of doing so. But once again, um, teachings can end up having consequences that you did not expect that the, that that would have down the road. And we are going to see this distinction end up having a huge impact because origin, you know, this, this would become, start becoming popular, you know, in the middle of the third century. And what is going to happen at the very beginning of the fourth century in Alexandria, Egypt? you're going to have the rise of an individual uh, who is going to become very popular there by the name of Arius. And Arius, of course, uh, becomes the great father of Arianism. Uh, and the result of the rise of Arius and his teaching, Arius teaches there was a time when the sun was not. There is a time when the sun was not. So the sun is a creature. He's a highly exalted creature. But he is simply 
a creature. And in light of that, uh, the great controversy that comes out of Arius then is the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> in 325. Um, you didn't really have any competition here. Uh, Gary's not here. No, no one to. No one to. What day okay. month did it actually begin? Uh, Febtober 11th. When? Febtober 11th. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we will, we will be seeing. Now, now, was it was it Orge's intention to do this? Could could he have foreseen this? No. Um, but you know, theology matters. Uh, theological teachings have consequences, and and there you go. Uh, there you have a rather negative um, result in in regards to uh, Origen. All right, let's leave Alexandria for a little while, uh, and let's talk about. Uh, one of the uh, leading light in North Africa, and that is Bishop Cyprian. We've mentioned him in some context before. Uh, 200 to 258 are his, uh, are his dates. Um, there really isn't a question that the greatest figure in the third century in North Africa is Cyprian, the martyr bishop of Carthage. Um, if you know your church history, you know that uh, though almost no one uh, talks about Carthage today, uh, Carthage was a major, major power in the, in the ancient world. You might be familiar with the uh, Carthaginian Wars and uh, Rome and so on and so forth. Um, his full name, don't worry about writing this down, but uh, just for the enjoyment of it, was Thasius Cecilius Cyprianus. A wonderful Latin, Latin name there. Must have been fun to learn how to spell that. But anyway, he was a Carthaginian trained in Roman law. Uh, he was ordained bishop in Carthage only in 249. He dies in 258. So here's someone who... Uh, makes a pretty big splash in just under a decade. Um, that happened to a lot of folks back then. Uh, even though you look at someone like Augustine, Augustine ends up having decades and decades and decades of, of, of ministry. So I guess it all depends. Um, but he's ordained bishop in, in 249. And what was 249? Well, remember the, when we talked about uh, persecution. Uh, when does persecution break out empire-wide, but right at this time period? Uh, that's exactly when this is taking place. So uh, the timing was uh, fortuitous there uh, from his perspective, I would imagine. Uh, he ran the church in Carthage by epistle during the Decian persecution in 250 to 251. So in other words, he fled, and then he, uh, having found a safe place, um, would answer questions and, and give decisions, so on and so forth, via uh, letter, via epistle. Um, the issue of uh, confessors granting some of their merit to the lapsi caused him to return to Carthage. But what does that mean? Well, a confessor, of course, would be a person 
who undergoes uh, persecution is faithful to their confession, um, and, but they do not give in and are not, well, the martyrs would be confessors, obviously. But then you had those who were imprisoned, those who were beaten, those who, were, who lost a limb, uh, whatever else it might be, and yet survived and were released. And as, when periods of persecution would end, or just when they were back into the fellowship, these individuals would have a special place as someone who had suffered for Christ and had been faithful in their suffering. And so what happened is what started happening in Carthage is you would have someone who, let's say they, they were whipped uh, and imprisoned uh, by the Romans for a number of years for being a Christian. And then somehow they survive and they are released. They come back into the fellowship of the church. And what would happen is, interestingly enough, while you would think that they would make up the very core of the hard liners when it came to how to deal with the lapsed. Remember that there were different kinds of lapsing. Um, you had the sacrificati and the libelatici and so on and so forth. Well, what's interesting is very often confessors would be the first ones to actually be on the other side. They had gone through it, they knew what it was like, and so they began developing this idea that since they sort of had a, a special place of having been faithful, that they could sort of share some of the merit that was theirs with someone who had lapsed to keep them in the fellowship and to sort of um, overcome uh, the negatives of their having lapsed. And so this they were just simply doing because they felt like they had the right to do it. And it was obviously causing tremendous dissension in the church because you still had hardliners who were going, no, this person's an apostate. I, I, I honor your service to Christ, your faithfulness, but that was your faithfulness. That's not, that's not his faithfulness. Uh, and so once again, as we've seen so many times, uh, it is the church's response and reaction to uh, persecution that can cause so deep, uh, a, a, such a deep division. And it all goes back to the theology uh, that underlies all of this. And so this was not something that Cyprian could deal with by letter. Uh, you know, there's certainly only things you can do by email, you know. Um, there, there are just other things you've got to look people in the eye and you can see how this would be one of them. Uh, when you've got people who may have lost an eye as a confessor and yet they're doing something that Cyprian's saying, you, you don't, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your, your kindness and your graciousness, but you don't have the right to do this type of thing. It's, it's theologically inappropriate. And so he has to return to uh, Carthage because of this. And remember, uh, what we've already discussed this, so we'll see if anyone can outrun Sean to their notes. Uh, we, we've got, see, now, see, George is at a disadvantage 
because he's toward the back of the room and it takes longer for sound to travel um, <laughs> to the back of the room and then, and then back up to me. So Sean has a bit of, a, uh, uh, of an advantage at this point. But what, was, what did we talk about earlier in regards to Cyprian and his theology that was so important to this subject? Oh, oh, Sean's going. Anyone remember? This is where, what did, where did Cyprian and Augustine, now of course they don't live at the same time period, but theologically, where did they have their disagreement? What was so important uh, in regards to persecution? I'm just going to stand here because I'm getting sad. Go ahead, Sean, if you'd like to. Oh, oh, no, you're not. Oh, now you're not. Uh, oh, I see. You made fun of me, so now I'm going to. I don't recall making fun of you at all. <laughs> I, I just said you had the advantage of being a little closer. Uh, that's, that's all I said. Well, I know that uh, Cyprian and Augustine disagreed about how to deal with, well, what later became the Donatist controversy. They took opposite sides of how to deal with that. And what was the important phrase that, that defines the difference between the two? The ex opera operato. Right. Uh, this is, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. Ex opera operato versus, and that's not Cyprian, that, that's, that's Augustine. Uh, ex opera operanti, I think is close enough. That's Cyprian's view. And what was this about again? Well, it has to do with how the sacraments function, how they work. And from Cyprian's perspective, ex opera operanti, the person performing the sacrament, their state of grace, whether they are in proper relationship to God, is vitally important. Um, a pagan could not perform a Christian baptism because he's a pagan. And so he's not in right relationship to God and therefore there can be no flow of divine grace and power through one who is himself in rebellion against God. So a sacrament of baptism, for example, uh, could not be uh, properly engaged in or performed by an individual who is not right with God. So if you hold this perspective, remember what happened with the Donatist controversy, you have the idea that there was an individual who had lapsed, who had given over the scriptures under persecution, and he was involved in ordaining a bishop, which is a sacramental act. And so that bishop's not a true bishop, because one of the people involved in ordaining him was not in right relationship to God. And so from the Donatist perspective, following Cyprian, I can't follow that bishop, because he was not properly ordained because of the theology of ex opera operanti. The, the one doing the, the sacrament, his spiritual state is relevant to the effectiveness of that action. And so what's going to happen uh, much later, because you're talking over 100 years is going to pass before Augustine comes along, and now he's dealing with this deep schism and split 
in the church in North Africa uh, with the Donatists having as many as 700 bishops at one point in time. And he develops a different understanding, and that's ex opera operato. Operanti means the one operating. Operato is by the operation itself. And so by the operation itself, uh, a sacrament is valid because it is a sacrament established by God, not because of who's doing it. And so eventually what happens in the adoption of ex opera operato uh, through the medieval period is a Buddhist priest uh, can validly baptize someone as long as it's done in the Trinitarian mode. Doesn't matter who it, do who it is. It's the action itself uh, being done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that makes it valid. And this then becomes one of the key issues in the issue of succession and the bishops and so on and so forth in North Africa. That was the huge controversy that was, uh, that was going on. And what was really difficult for Augustine was trying to overcome the authority of Cyprian because when you die as a martyr bishop, um, disagreeing with someone like that can get you in deep trouble with the people who honor the memory uh, and the authority of that particular individual. So uh, we have ex opera operante and ex opera operato. And these both, I'm sorry, my Latin is, uh, is rusty. Should be E's, not A's. It's right there in the notes in front of me, but it is very small print. So yeah, anyway. Of this question? It's an irrelevant question, uh, biblically speaking. Um, the idea of sacramental uh, efficaciousness. Uh, well, if you want to see where I fall on that, uh, look at the uh, debate between myself and uh, Doug Wilson in 2004. And what do I mean by that? Well, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because right now this sort of seems like something that happened back in North Africa and how is it relevant to us today? Um, how many of you are familiar with the strong divisions that existed uh, between the northern and southern Presbyterians uh, only 150 years ago? Um, if you've read Darby, uh, Hodge, uh, you might be surprised to be reading a Presbyterian and all of a sudden you're reading one Presbyterian and they will accept Roman Catholic baptism as being a valid baptism. And then you read another Presbyterian and they won't even think of it. It's not, it's not even close. Well, they're both Presbyterians. What, what happened? Um, and it really, it does go back uh, historically to some of these conversations in the early church. Uh, because a northern Presbyterian, even to this day, I have, I have friends. I have Presbyterian friends uh, who uh, are convinced that they must accept as a valid Christian baptism. Now this obviously gets us into subjects of covenant and pedo-baptism and stuff we don't have time to develop in the next three minutes, uh, which is all we have left. But they 
will not ask for uh, the baptism of a Roman Catholic convert, they will, they, they will straightforwardly say, Rome has a false gospel. Uh, the Roman Catholics need to be evangelized. Uh, they, they will invite people to, to embrace Christ and, and, and leave the bosom of Rome the whole nine yards. But they'll accept Roman Catholic baptism as a valid baptism. Um, why? Because it was done in a Trinitarian mode. Ex opera operato. It was done in a Trinitarian mode, and therefore, it's a valid baptism. And so, when I debated Doug Wilson in 2004, uh, the, the thesis was focused upon the idea that Roman Catholics uh, are... are and now, uh, we don't we don't have seatbelts on our chairs, so so hold on. But our our unregenerate brothers and sisters in Christ, and the idea from his perspective is you you do Roman Catholic evangelism by grabbing them by their baptism. They have been uh, by their baptism they have been uh, brought into a relationship that now they need to live in light of. And they're not living in light of it because of what Rome teaches. But you grab them by their baptism. And of course, my perspective is Rome doesn't have a gospel. Therefore, there is no way of even defining any action, including baptism, in any meaningful fashion outside of the gospel. You can't. What is, what is Christian baptism without the gospel? How, how can you even begin to talk about such things? It doesn't make a lick of sense. Um, but uh, that's, where, that's where it comes from. And so... The Northern and Southern Presbyterians, this was their division as well. Um, and given your beard, you'd definitely be a Southern Presbyterian now. Uh, you're definitely uh, uh, in, in, in the right group there. But um, uh, even though they lost the war. <laughs> um, so you're, you're, you're in trouble there. But anyway, uh, so it does continue to have relevance, especially amongst those who have a uh, sacramental theology, and when I say sacrament, sacramentum, the idea within Roman Catholicism especially of a, of a mechanism of, of, of transferring grace through what is done, uh, allegedly commanded by Christ to be done. And the, the, the line of balance has to do with the, the concept of means of grace that God has ordained, and then specifying channels of grace that then can be controlled by human action. Uh, that's where I think you end up crossing biblical lines and, and uh, so on and so forth. So this was all based upon a misunderstanding to begin with as far as the, the early development of the sacraments. You didn't have the seven sacraments yet in the days of Cyprian, but they're expanding. Uh, they're growing and uh, would continue to do so for quite some time. Quite some time. Okay? All right. Out of time, let's close the time with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, once again, as we have looked back upon your work in the building of your church, we ask that once again you would give us insight, that we might uh, learn from the good and learn to avoid the bad, that we would be forced back into your word, uh, that we would be thankful for the work that you've done in those in the past and gain confidence you will continue to build your church uh, in the future as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.